Good morning, church. I hope everybody's doing well today. We've got a few visitors. I'm Jim Lanier. I'm the eldest elder here, and also the only one that has any hair. So I'm easy to identify. I don't preach much, but I enjoy it. It brings me joy. And I hope you'll hear from the Holy Spirit this morning. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your mercy to us. We thank you for creation, which we enjoy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your death and resurrection, we will live eternally if we just believe it and receive it. And Holy Spirit, you are the great teacher. And I pray this morning that you will teach us all. And I pray that the things that I think uh, and the things that I say will be pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that uh, if I should confuse or be in error in any place, I pray that you will bring, bring clarity and correction. We want to glorify God this morning. That is my desire. And in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, 18 weeks ago on February the 2nd, we started a sermon series called Life and Teaching. It's based on Paul's words in his first letter to Timothy, and we find it in chapter 4, verse 16. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And quoting Mitch, the aim of the series was to lay a foundation for us to be equipped to live out the response to the question, what if the whole church were the missionary? As we enter our vocational or social domains of society, we are entering the battleground for the kingdom of God and conflict with the systems of the world under the influence of fallen hosts of evil. The weapons on the battlefield are not physical or fleshly, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captives to obey Christ. At 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. According to Peter, we are to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks us for the reason for the hope that is within us. Hope, confidence, assurance, power come from knowing the truth, and God's Word is truth. That's where we started, the Bible. And we progress through what the Bible says about God, the Trinity, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, creation, man, the gospel, salvation, the church, angels and demons, and last things. Mitch has served up on a platter the essentials of biblical doctrine. Like John Wick selecting from a weapons locker, we have all we need for effective warfare. Be careful, Timothy. Pay close attention to your life and teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. 
Mitch has performed well in teaching us, but Mitch's life, the way he lives, can invalidate, can inauthenticate everything he has taught. But relax, Mitch. I'm not going to call you out for anything. You are not the only one on the spot. So am I. So are you, John. So is Kara and Christian. So is Jim, Bonnie, and Phil. Pay close attention to your life, your salvation, and that of those hearing you and watching you is at stake. Today we conclude the series with what is the Christian life. What we know and teach must be propelled into the world by the way we live our lives. We will walk through the Bible from stem to stern, Torah to almost Revelation, as a foundation, and then we will look to Paul's letters to the churches to continue the building. And when we finally finish the sermon today, we will find that the structure has yet to be completed. Scripture doesn't give us answers to the questions it poses. The only answers that really matter are yours and mine. I hope I've aroused your curiosity. Let's get started. I have no idea why I remember the things I do and forget your name when I round the corner in Walmart and see you standing there. But I do remember years ago that a maybe one-time visitor posed a question to Mitch, and he passed that question along to the rest of the elder body. And the question was, what is the reason for the seemingly backward progression Isaiah uses in his very familiar passage in chapter 40? Let me read beginning in 29. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. And here it comes. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Normally a series would progress from the lesser to the greater. Good, better, best. Let me give you an example. The model track team this year had fast runners, but some were faster than others, and the fastest on the team was Daniel Jolly. To me, the only thing that made sense was that Isaiah thought that in a spiritual sense, walking was more difficult than running, and running more difficult than soaring. Why? Let me give you an example. When Mitch has just knocked one out of the park and then calls us into a time of worship, and Adam and Chris and the crew begin to draw us into the throne room of the heavenly tabernacle, we all begin to soar. Adam Waits, who's usually right over there, will spread his seven-foot wingspan, and the young ladies that are normally over here will get the Holy Spirit, and they're just such a joy to watch. We're all lifted up and soar with them. Easy. And after the blessing, when our spiritual feet touch down, we don't leave, but in fellowshipping with each other, we are easily running in the lingering spiritual high. 
The spiritual high may linger for the rest of the day, and we continue running as we meet in our radical life groups, at least it should. We finally settle down to sweet dreams, and in an instant, it seems, the alarm goes off, and it's Monday morning, and the battle begins. It's time to start walking. The baby has a blown-out diaper. Your spouse says something to you that you take the wrong way. The kids are dragging their tails. Someone with a fish bumper bumper sticker cuts you off in traffic. You enter your job and realize that your lunch is still on the kitchen counter. And a co-worker gives you that look. You know that look because you're five minutes late. And fallen humanity and the fallen world systems are a hundred pound backpack. And one single step in the spirit can be a grind. And you realize it's only Monday. Yes, Isaiah, each step on the battleground is tiring. There are moments of soaring in victory, but the real struggle is putting one foot in front of the other, maintaining spiritual focus, steadily walking toward the finish line, not turning either to the left or the right, but keeping to the straight and narrow. The Christian life can be an exhaustingly long, often uphill walk. But lift up your heads, ye saints, and remember the promise. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Youths may become faint and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord will renew their strength. And Timothy and any Christian who has been taught well and is paying close attention to his teaching and its application to his life will walk and not grow faint. Let's see what the Word of God teaches about walking. Genesis 3.8 When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God literally walking in the garden with the goal and expectation of intimacy with His creation and those He created. We will concentrate on the metaphor of walking through life, but here in this early verse, we observe critical points. We do not walk through life alone. We walk in relationships, and sometimes those relationships, in the, as in here in the garden, can get broken. A pastor once defined sin for me as anything which damages a relationship. Here we see that the relationship between man and God has been broken by sin. Let's continue in Torah. And by the way, what's some English words that we use instead of Torah? Well, we use the law. And we also use the teaching. That's what many Jews call the Torah. The teaching. Do you think Timothy's Hebrew mama and grandmama began his teaching in Torah? Here are just a few of lots of examples. Deuteronomy 11:22. For if you carefully observe every one of those th- these commandments I am giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, walk in His ways, and remain faithful to Him, the Lord will establish establish you in the land. 
the Lord will establish, this is Deuteronomy 28, 9, the Lord will establish you as, your holy, as his holy people, as he swore to you, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except to fear the Lord your God by walking in all his ways, to love him and to worship the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And Deuteronomy 6, 5 adds, and with all your strength. If that sounds familiar, stay tuned. On and on through the, Holy, through the Old Testament, Joshua, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Chronicles, Psalm 1, last week Psalm 15 from the NASB, who may reside in your tent, who may settle on your holy hill, one who walks with integrity, practices righteousness, and speaks truth in his heart. Over and over, the Old Testament describes a life of righteousness in right relationship with God as a steady walk before the Lord in obedience. I hope I've convinced you, but I'm really just getting started. The Ten Commandments concern only two relational categories our relationship with God and our relationship with our fellow man. Your relationship with your fellow man is not just in here on Sunday morning, but out there in the domains of society, out there where the battle is. Let's listen to a conversation with Jesus and an expert of the law from Luke 10. You're all familiar with this passage. Then an expert of the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He asked him, How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, he told him. Do this, and you will live. The man has answered correctly, covering both parts of the Ten Commandments. But then his humanity takes over, and he, his corrupted humanity, or the father of lies, whispers to him, Surely there are some out there, maybe many, that aren't really my neighbor. Surely the law has limits continues, but wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's looking for a disclaimer and escape clause. Yeah, but obviously that doesn't apply to everyone I meet along the road. He's thinking, not hookers and tax collectors, beggars and slaves, and certainly not Samaritan dogs. Surely not the dregs of South Rome, nor the Muslims, or the Taliban, or the Buddhists. As we walk along through life, it's easy to be lured to the left and our right by arguments and proud things, and just conform to societal and cultural expectations, systems, boundaries, and structures. Let look, let's look at Paul's understanding of the Christian life. 
He says it's kind of like walking in a particular way. As a matter of fact, Acts refers eight times to the Christian life as the way. Saul was going to Damascus to take as prisoners to Jerusalem those who, quote, belonged to the way. Saul was looking to persecute them. I love this book. It so, con- it so consistently confirms itself. Writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul begins his application in chapter 4. Therefore, I, as a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Not exactly characteristics of worldly fame and power. Five times Paul uses walk as a metaphor. Walk worthy. Walk not in the futility of the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of the light. And finally in 5.15 we see something familiar. Pay careful attention then to how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of the time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. I want to jump over to Colossians now. I've mostly been reading from the CSB this morning, and verse 4-5 reads, Act wisely toward outsiders. But the ESV, which Mitch quoted just a couple of weeks ago, reads, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how to answer each person. You see, salvation is at stake. Pay attention to your life and teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Salvation is at stake. This whole series has purposed to teach us, to equip us, to walk before God and before man in a manner that glorifies God and makes us worthy of the calling upon our lives. All authority has been given. Therefore, go. You have the theory, but can it be applied in our domains, the real world? Or are there too many temptations to justify ourselves, to dodge the call? In both letters to the churches in Ephesus and Colossae, he teaches what is the proper relationships in a Christian household. Relationships between husband and wives, parents and children, slaves, and masters. Very similar passages in both books, but I want to read from Colossians 3, starting at verse 22. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve Christ Jesus. 
For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there's no favoritism. Masters deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know you too have a master in heaven. A picture of the relationships between God and man and man and man. A simple, compelling picture of accountability before God for how we relate to our fellow image bearers. What could go wrong? As Paul closes the letter, he says he is sending Tychicus, our dearly beloved brother, and dearly, our dearly beloved brother, and with him is Onesimus, a faithful and dearly loved brother, who is one of you. Now, if Paul's letter is being read aloud in the Colossian church, there will be a very loud gasp to arise. For Onesimus was indeed once one of them, but he is now an escaped slave from the household of Philemon, and he is about to return. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people-pleasers, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong is done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you, you know you too have a master in heaven. It's about to get real in the church in Colossae. Paul writes a letter to Philemon to inform him and to make requests of him. The letter comes in the canon at the end of Paul's letters, almost as if they weren't sure what to do with it. It's right before you get to Hebrews, right at the very end of Paul's letters. I think it should be right after Paul's Colossian letter, and the two should always be taught together. Let me explain. Let's suppose one Sunday morning, right after Mitch presents a stirring and convicting sermon, just before his call to worship, he looks up and says, By the way, Ben Umberger, something is troubling me, and I'd like to talk to you about it right after service. And bring Madison, Elijah, and well, bring the rest of the Radical Life group that meets in your home. You see, this letter, rarely ever preached, is full of drama and suspense, opportunity and peril. It is a letter of victimhood and victims' rights. And it's a letter about the church surrounded by established social, cultural, worldly systems, arguments, and proud things that Paul is asking the characters in the story, to resist, to deny, to battle against, 
even to demolish. And most importantly, it's a story of relationships. God to man, man to man. Jesus might say, neighbor to neighbor. So as I read it, I want you to try to identify with the participants. I want you to think what they were up against in deciding how to respond. Well, the the context, the dynamics of the story is the Roman slave system in the mid first century AD, it is possible that you may find yourself in a similar situation as you daily walk through the battlefield of the kingdom and the world. I'll read the entire book. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God when I mention you in my prayers because I hear of your love for all the saints and the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your participation in the faith may become effective through knowing every good thing that is in us for the glory of Christ. For I have great joy and encouragement from from your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. For this reason, although I have great boldness in Christ to command you to do what is right, I appeal to you instead on the basis of love. I, Paul, as an elderly man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my son, Onesimus. I became his father while I was in chains. Once he was useless to you, but now he is useful both to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you. I'm sending my very heart. I wanted to keep him with me so that in my imprisonment for the gospel he might serve me in your place. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent so that your good deed might not be out of obligation but of your own free will. For perhaps this is why he was separated from you for a brief time, so that you might get him back permanently, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. And if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your very self. Yes, brother, may I benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Since I am confident of your obedience, I'm writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, since I hope that through your prayers I will be restored to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my co-workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Blessed be the reading and the hearing of God's Word. 
There's so much that this letter doesn't say about the recipients. Doesn't say about the context, but the recipients would surely understand it. You see, 30% of the Roman Empire at this time was slave. I've seen the number 60 million slaves. They ranged from field worker to soldier to physician to prostitute, from a cook to a children's tutor and music, and music teacher, and they had no rights. The stability of the empire depended on the stability of the slave system. A disobedient escaped slave could be punished by torture, branding, or crucifixion. Extreme threats to escaped slaves in order to preserve the societal structure. In the religious world of the church, Philemon has been exemplary. Paul doesn't express him as the authoritative apostle, but rather as brother and co-worker. Philemon's love and ministry is well known. In the society, Philemon was probably wealthy with a house sufficient for large gatherings. He, was pro he probably owned multiple slaves, and his peers in the community were probably slave owners as well. The church and the society were paying close attention. Philemon's response would affect both. If Aphthia is Philemon's wife, she has the responsibility of managing the household slaves. The escape would be a personal affront to her and may have caused some marital discord as well. We don't know how Onesimus came to know the Hello? Hello? Can you hear me? Is it working? Okay. I don't hear it. Anyway. Okay. Philemon's love and ministry is well known. In the society, Philemon was probably wealthy with a, with a house sufficient for large gatherings. He probably owned multiple slaves, and his peers in the community were probably slave owners as well. The church and the society were paying close attention. Philemon's response would affect both. If Aphia is Philemon's wife, she has the responsibility of managing the household slaves. The escape would be a personal affront to her and may have caused some marital discord as well. We don't know how Onesimus came to know the prisoner, Paul, in Rome. But obviously, Paul's teaching compels him to take responsibility for his crimes before his master, risking death in doing so. The text indicates that when he escaped, he also stole. Interestingly, Paul refers to Onesimus with, Onesimus with the same term he called Timothy, son. Surely having taught Philemon also, do you think they maybe both 
have heard from Paul the same instruction. Pay close attention to your life and teaching. There's a lot at stake. Paul tells Philemon that he owes Paul his very self, indicating Paul had presented the gospel to Philemon, telling him that although he deserved judgment himself, Christ has paid him his debt. And likewise, Paul would repay Onesimus' debt before Philemon. The gospel is more than a get-out-of-hell-free card. The gospel compels us to forgive as we are forgiven. The gospel compels us to become a new creation, establishing a new society where there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, since we are all one in Christ Jesus. And everyone in Colossae is awaiting the response. Is this Jesus thing real in everyday life or just on the first day of the week? And alas, the text gives us nothing about the outcome. As I said earlier, perhaps the Word of God is asking, given similar circumstances, similar risks, and similar injustices, how would I respond? How would we respond? Are we ready to demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive? I ran across this comment by Charles Spurgeon. I, I wish I could write like Spurgeon. The transformation of the individual is the key to the transformation of society and the moral environment. But mark this word, the true reforming of the drunkard lies in giving him a new heart. The true reclaiming of the harlot is to be found in a renewed nature. I see certain of my brethren fiddling away at the branches of the tree of vice with their wooden saws, but as for the gospel, it lays the axe at the roots of the whole forest of evil, and if it be fairly received into the heart, it fells all the bad trees at once, and instead of them there spring up the fir tree, the pine tree, and the box tree together to beautify the house of our master's glory. Our Master's glory. That's the goal of the Christian life. And that's why we walk and not grow faint. In response, it's time to reflect and to soar. So let me pray, and the worship team can lead us. Mighty God, it seems there's nothing new under the sun. Although the outcome is certain, the battle still rages. Teach us, equip us, strengthen us to engage, and cause us always to remember we do not battle alone. We go to war with the strong Son of God leading us.
Amen, amen, and amen.